Good morning. Great to see you all. Um, if you haven't been around for a while or if you're visiting for the first time, you might not be aware, but we are in a very extended series on the book of Acts. We are going through the book of Acts very thoroughly and learning a ton of lessons as we do that, right? And I want to jump right in. We don't have much um, time this morning. Uh, I'm going to read in Acts chapter 20, so if you can open your Bibles there, please. Now, just to summarize what we've been doing recently in the last couple of lessons, uh, we have seen how Paul spent two years in Ephesus uh, creating disciples, and we saw how, how successful this was. We saw how many people in Ephesus accepted the gospel and how they went out into the surrounding areas. And the gospel spread into Asia as a result of, of Paul and his companions uh, teaching and preaching daily uh, the word of God. And people who practiced magic repented. We saw that. And they repented radically. They burned their magic books, which were worth not, not just a small fortune. It was worth a lot of money. And the challenge for us in that is, you know, our repentance, our genuine repentance, needs to be shown in similar ways. We don't walk around with magic books, hopefully, but we need to radically give up the things that pull us back into the into the darkness from which we have been saved into Christ. And then last week, uh, we saw how the acceptance of the gospel in Ephesus and the surrounding areas radically disrupted society. Now, accepting the gospel doesn't just change us individually, but it radically disrupts society. And in Ephesus, there was a worship of uh, the goddess uh, Artemis, who was sort of the main god in the area, and there was a thriving little manufacturing business, creating little shrines of Artemis, little articles that people would place in their homes, etc., and worship them. And we read the story about silversmiths in Ephesus getting pretty upset to the point of causing a riot in the city because their business was being destroyed. This wasn't just a 5 or 10% dropping in sales that's going to be corrected in future. They were going out of business. So you can imagine the effect that the gospel was having on Ephesus. People were fundamentally changing, uh, you know, how they spent their time, what they were investing their money in, and and what, or rather, who they were worshipping. And that also is uh, a, a result that we can expect if we are out there in Port Elizabeth, you know, proclaiming the gospel. We can expect not only to change individual lives, but to radically disrupt Port Elizabeth. That's what we are called to do as disciples. You know the things that people focus on at the moment in the world in Port Elizabeth and all the multitude of sins that are going on out there can be turned around if we if we get people to the point of repentance, fundamentally changing the way they think about God and the world and their role in it. You know, Paul was the most, in my mind, the most Christ-like disciple he ever lived. Certainly, um, you know, a disciple whose life is recorded as thoroughly as Paul's is. You know, he, to me, is a hero in the faith just because I cannot imagine anyone being more like Jesus than, than Paul was. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul encourages his readers to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And he repeats this in, in two of his other letters in Philippians and 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. He says, imitate me. And that's not out of arrogance. Now, Paul just wanted to present a role model, a living, real, touchable role model of what the life in Christ 
looks like. And we've learned much about Paul throughout his missionary journey so far. Um, not only about what he achieved and how he did ministry, uh, but about the person Paul. And in each story, you know, that we've read in recent months, we've learned things about Paul, like just how he proclaimed the kingdom of God, how he connected with people where they were at, and somehow built the story of Jesus into their story. Now, he was so effective at just proclaiming the gospel, how he was able to reason that the scriptures were, or rather persuade people that the scriptures were true and reasonable. We've seen how Paul endured opposition and persecution, and multiple beatings left for dead. We've seen how Paul made disciples of Jesus, how he planted churches, how he brought people to maturity in Christ. We've seen how he connected deeply with people, how he encouraged and comforted them. We've seen how he built ministry teams and, and so much more. Now, Paul is such an imitatable person. But just introducing today's lesson, we're going to read another story from Paul's travels. I'm going to cover just 12 verses today. And we're going to draw from this passage of Scripture some Christ-like qualities of Paul. And it's going to be very practical and, and very it's going to be useful for us to really understand what it means to have the mind of Christ and how to imitate Paul. Because I'm going to focus specifically on how the mind of Christ was alive and well in Paul. And how controlled, when controlled by that mind, what Paul's life looked like. You know, how he made decisions, his attitude, his worldview, the things he would think about, the things that concerned him. Now, at the beginning of the year, it was actually in, I think, the middle to the end of January, um, I preached a lesson called not WWJD, but WWJT. You guys remember that? What does WWJD stand for? What would Jesus do? And WWJT, amen, someone remembers it. Good. WWJT, what would Jesus think? And I asked why it's not very helpful to ask the question, what would Jesus do? And you know the bumper stickers and all the things that went around and the banners and the T-shirts, um, you know, with that WWJD. It's not particularly useful to ask ourselves that question because the Bible isn't an instruction manual. It isn't a set of procedures that explains what Jesus did in every single situation. It's much more useful and biblical to ask ourselves the questions, how did Jesus think? Because as Jesus viewed situations and as he thought and as he prioritized, we read about those things and then we can apply those principles to situations better than we can trying to figure out what Jesus did in every situation. It's not what Jesus did, but more, and it's not even what Jesus felt. You know, what's very helpful is to understand how Jesus thought. What, what would Jesus think in certain situations? So we're going to focus on the mind of Christ the mind of Christ in action in Paul. And in that lesson and at the beginning of the year, and if you're a member of the church or you visit us regularly, you will know that we speak a lot about repentance and worldviews. We speak a lot about it because it's critically important to be in right relationship with God. Throughout the Old Testament, you know, God raised up prophets to call his people to repent, to change their way of life, to turn back to God. John the Baptist, you know, spoke, preached repentance. He said, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. 
Jesus, if you read uh, the Gospel of Mark, in his first public address, he called people to repent. He repeated what John the Baptist said. He said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. The apostles spoke. They proclaimed a message of, of repentance. And in Acts 3, by the way, I think, sorry, Acts 4, Peter and John are speaking and they refer to the blessing, the refreshing of repentance. Now, repentance, the English word for the Greek word metanoia, which literally means a shift in mind, a change in worldview, a paradigm shift in how we view the world, what God is up to, and how we fit into God's picture. It's a fundamental change in how we think. It changes our attitudes. It changes our thinking processes, our priorities. That's the purpose of repentance. And we are transformed, says Romans 12, by the renewing of our minds. Now, in the church, we also like to use this word rewiring. Amen, campus? We are changed to become more like Jesus by having our minds rewired, renewed. You know, Jesus' mind is rewired in a certain way. If you could somehow draw the sketch, you'd see it. And before Christ, our minds are rewired very differently. But in Christ, as we take up the life of Christ and, and, and submit to his lordship, our minds start to be rewired. We can change our thought patterns. We can change our view of the world, how we fit in it. We can change the way we think and make decisions and prioritize, and we can change our attitudes. And it's a lifelong process as we are transformed, as we are rewired, as our minds are rewired to help us to think like Jesus, first of all, to have the mind of Christ, because from our thoughts, our our thoughts determine our behaviors, and our repetitive behaviors determine our character. Okay, so as a church, we focus a lot on having the mind of Christ. It's at the foundation of discipleship. It's at, the, it's at the heart of our salvation and our ongoing transformation to become like Jesus. And in this passage we're going to look today, we see some great principles and lessons about how Paul uh, submitted to the mind of Christ, how he had the mind of Christ, and how being controlled by the mind of Christ resulted in certain attitudes and behavior and decisions that he made. So I think it's, it's, it's a great case study, and, and, and I hope you, you see it like that. Uh, before, before we jump in there, let me pray. Father, we are grateful that you do not call us to live a life that uh, we have no idea how to live, God. It's not like you call us to this you know, crazy standard of change and repentance, not knowing what we need to change to and how we need to change our minds and our lives to please you, God. Thank you, Father, for your word. We know we get the answers in your word. But thank you especially, God, for the example of Jesus. Just a living example of, of one who lived in complete obedience to you and of one who had the perfect view of the world. Uh, the one who processed thoughts perfectly and who made decisions, good decisions always, God. And who had the kind of attitude that you want us to have, Father. Thank you that we can look at his life and learn from it. And thank you, Father, that you've given us someone else who's, who's more like us than Jesus. You've given us Paul. Thank you for his example. Before he, his conversion into Christ, we know that he was zealous for you, God. He was incredibly zealous as a Pharisee. But his zeal was based on religion, God, and trying to please you by doing things right and obeying all the laws. But Father, after Christ, we see Paul, who was still zealous, but he was zealous now for the right reasons and the right things. His zeal was fueled not by religion, but by relationship, God. He was, his zeal was fueled by his love for you and his love for God's people. And Father, that rewiring of his mind 
that renewal, that repentance resulted in just an amazing example of a disciple that is imitatable God. I pray we walk away from this lesson knowing that God and inspired to live like that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 20, you guys there, from 1 to 6. I mentioned that there was a riot in Ephesus caused by the silversmiths whose manufacturing businesses were were going out of business. And then we'll take up the the reading here in verse 1. After the uproar or the riot ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, Troas where we stayed for seven days. Okay, so I'm going to show you the map because it's difficult to kind of picture what's going on here, isn't it? I want to show some of these places and just through the map what's going on here. Okay, so this is Paul's third missionary journey. He started in Antioch. He visited all these cities. He ended up in Ephesus uh, for a couple of years. That's what we've been reading about, right? And now Paul is leaving Ephesus and he takes this journey. He goes east, uh, sorry, he goes north on the west coast of Asia, uh, visits these different places and ends up in Greece. The reference to Greece is, is Corinth. Now Luke doesn't tell us much about what he did. It's, it's very short and, and very sort of factual, but we can certainly assume, knowing Paul, that he stopped and encouraged the disciples there. That's just what he did. He couldn't get into a city where there was a church without teaching and encouraging. Uh, so we read that he ended up in, in Greece. And then he stayed for three months in Corinth, planning to return to Syria. This area in the Bible is, is always referred to as Syria. He planned to hop on a, on, on a ship. It would typically first... Uh, you know, harbor there and then sail around to uh, Caesarea, which is about there, and from there go to, go to Jerusalem. But he changed his mind because he heard that the Jews had hatched a plot to kill him on the way. Now, if you were on a ship and if you were on a boat in those days in particular, it was pretty easy to be lost overboard. Okay, so there was a real danger that the Jews would have chucked Paul over, overboard and he would have died. So, Paul got, got wind of this and his companions, and instead of taking a ship, he, he took the coastal route planning to not sail across the Aegean Sea, but to take the, you know, the, sorry, the, the land route, and then to sail from somewhere there, which we'll read about next, next week. And the passage I'm going to read after this ends in Troas. So what we cover today is this journey as well as the journey back to Troas. So a lot of travel, a lot of cities, but Luke doesn't give us the detail. Obviously, he doesn't think it's, it's necessary. It doesn't add to anything that Luke has already said. Interestingly, we believe, or, or the, the Bible scholars conclude, that on, on the way to Corinth, Paul actually wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, what, what, what we know as the second letter to the Corinthians. There were lots of problems in Corinth. Guys, remember, there were problems doctrinally, there were problems with the way they were living, their ethics, 
Their doctrine, their beliefs were totally out. So Paul actually wrote to them, and the letter went ahead of them, ahead of him. So he would have spent a few months in Corinth, then addressing these problems. And in Corinth, uh, Paul used that time. I don't know how Paul did all these things, but he used the time in Corinth to also write his masterpiece letter to the Romans. So the letter to the Romans was written while Paul was was in Corinth. And in the letter to the Romans, we read that he used his time in Corinth, he utilized his time to take up the financial contribution from the Corinthians that he planned originally by ship to take to Jerusalem. The contribution from them, which he had taken up from all the other churches on his missionary journey, uh, to deliver the money to Jerusalem. Uh, what was happening in Jerusalem at the time is that the, the church, in particular the Christians, were impoverished. Uh, Jerusalem and Judea, Judea was going through an economic recession, I guess we would call it. But the Christians in those days, when they made the decision to make Jesus Lord, they counted the cost, and I've shared this before, in ways that you and I don't have to, or very few people have to. They were disowned by their families, they were excluded from economic activity. Counting the cost to follow Jesus cost them financially. So Paul was very concerned about them, and we're going to read in, let's turn to Romans and read what um, Paul wrote. Remember, while he is in Corinth, it gives us some, now just interesting insight here into the heart, or the, you know, the mind and the heart of, of Paul as well. Romans 15, you can keep your finger in Acts 3, we'll be back there shortly. From verse 23, Romans 15, verse 23. He's writing to Rome, Christians in Rome from Corinth. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. So Paul, Paul had this, this dream and this plan to, to visit the Christians in Rome. And he said now that his work in all of the, you know, these regions and churches is pretty much finished, he so looked forward now to going further west. Remember Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the the earth. So Rome was towards the end of the earth, and Spain at that time was absolutely the end of the earth. So he he had a dream and a hope to go to Rome and then from Rome to go on to Spain. Paul would go to Rome, but under very, very different circumstances to what he anticipates here. He'd go to Rome in chains, but we're going to, don't want to jump the gun, we're going to be learning about that in uh, in the next few months. Okay. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. That's what I spoke about, the financial offering. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let me, let me finish there. Paul is in, while he is in Corinth, he's not just addressing, you know, the false doctrine and the, really the, the way of life that isn't very different to the way the pagans were behaving outside of the church. Not only is he 
doing that, but he's writing the letter to the Romans and he's taking up a contribution to take to Jerusalem. Now in verse 3 in Acts, if you can go back to Acts, Acts 20 verse 3, it says that he planned to set sail for Syria with the money he had collected. Right? When he heard of the plot of the Jews who wanted to kill him, he thought it's too risky to get on a boat. Uh, so they took the coastal route, or the, the land route. And what some translations say uh, is that, you know, he decided to return to Macedonia as instructed by the Holy Spirit. Now we know from Acts 16, if you w- want to go back and read that, you know, Paul and his companions on his second missionary journey were traveling through Asia from Antioch and they wanted to go, they wanted to dip south to visit this region, yeah, but the Holy Spirit kept on pushing them north and north. And, and I think there's a, a lesson for us I'm, I'm going to pick up on in, um, in, in a moment is that Paul, although he made plans, he was always open to the Holy Spirit changing them. And I think what happened here was that the Holy Spirit convicted him that the risk was too great. Paul would normally accept risk, wouldn't he? He just, I know what, it's wise for the, for, you know, the purposes of, you know, the gospel and getting to Jerusalem that I don't actually take the boat. And then in verse 4 and 5, we read about the men who Paul chose to accompany him to Jerusalem with a collection. And this is very interesting. There are nine men in total. Uh, he, he mentions their names as well as where they are from. And these men represented different churches and regions where Paul had been to, to collect the offering. And his plan was to go to Jerusalem with this group of, of nine men. I'm not going to go through the, the, you know, the names again, but they represented these, these churches. And now thinking about this, why did Paul select these people? And, and, and I see three benefits. And once again, this gives us insights into the mind of, of Paul. Firstly, it was simply unwise to travel with large amounts of money on your own in those days. And it still is. I mean, how many of you are going to go to crime sort of ridden areas in, in Port Elizabeth with your laptop on your back, right? And walk around all alone at night. Probably not wise, right? You, we tend to travel with groups of people into, let's say, dangerous areas. Same back in those days. So it was just wise to have, to be traveling with, with a group, a pretty decent sized group of, of nine men. It was safer. Now, but secondly, these guys were witnesses of the success of Paul's missionary journeys. It's one thing to hear the story from Paul, but in Jerusalem, when these guys shared, you know, how the gospel was proclaimed and how people responded to the gospel in their cities and how their churches were, were planted and how the Jews and Gentiles together, you know, were meeting and they had this unity in Christ and things were going so great. That's, that's a powerful witness. So I think, you know, Paul would have been taking these guys for that reason too. And interestingly, the churches that, uh, that are represented by these nine folks, some of them were planted on the first missionary journey, some on the second and some on the third. So Paul was also, you know, the message from Paul was, man, the missionary, you know, your support for the, you know, the journeys and my travels have been successful, not just one, but all three of them. And then thirdly, I think, I see a benefit in Paul taking this team with him to Jerusalem. And Romans 15 sort of implies this. It demonstrated these individual churches' commitment to God's family of all nations, to the universal Catholic family. You know, these these men were were leaders in their churches. They were needed. 
And traveling to Jerusalem wasn't just, you know, you fly in, you spend a few days, then you fly back. It took months. You know, they prioritized that in spite of the needs back at their local churches, it was important for them to help build God's family of all nations. They were very aware of the tensions between Jews and Gentiles. So they saw this as a priority. You know, the, you know, God's ongoing plan and story to gather the nations, you know, Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, was a priority for them. And they wanted to be part of that. So just to kind of summarize, I'm going to pull out some lessons from this passage we've just read. Make it nice and short, but just what does this tell us about the mind of Paul? Now, how did he process things? How did he make decisions? How did he prioritize? How did his thinking affect his attitude and his character? Firstly, Paul took every opportunity to encourage his brothers and sisters. He was, he was relational at heart. Paul was, was so relational. Before leaving Ephesus, you know, he got the disciples together and he encouraged them. And on the way to the different churches, we read that he paused and he encouraged. And later on in the next passage, in, in Troas, um, after this all-night amazing fellowship, prayer evening time of teaching, we read that the disciples in Troas left comforted. Now, wherever Paul went, he encouraged and he comforted people. And that is, that is the priority of Jesus as well. You know, if you follow the ministry of, of Jesus, he was exactly the same. Jesus had time for people. He paused, he encouraged, he comforted, he took an interest in people. You know, Jesus was super relational. He had fellowship with people at every opportunity. He encouraged, he comforted. And linked to that, Paul had heartfelt farewells. We're going to read about that next week, I think. It's going to be more specific. But whenever he said farewell to churches, it was heart-rendering for him. He didn't like to leave groups of disciples. Such was the closeness and the love and the connection with, with disciples. And Jesus was exactly the same. Read John 17 in your own time. That is a prayer of Jesus for the apostles who walked with him, the 12, and then he follows that up with a prayer for those who will come. That's us sitting here. And just read and hear the, the emotion and, and the heart of Jesus in that prayer. You know, he prays for unity. He prays you know, that the disciples won't run away and be dispersed and fight with each other. He prays for faith. Jesus connected with people, he encouraged, he walked alongside, relational, and we see that in Paul. And for us, having the mind of Christ, our belief starts there. The dominant worldview, I know I'm kind of maybe overstating it, but a strong worldview is that it's all about us individually. Right? Now, individualism is just part of our age. Now, we look after ourselves, we put up these... You know, boundaries, we don't want people to get into our space. We're scared or wary to be vulnerable and honest with people. It's my life is my life and hasn't got much to do with you. That's, that's a, a dominant worldview out there. But in Christ, it's different. In Christ, we enjoy the common life. There is fellowship. There is sharing the, of our lives. There's so many opportunities to encourage one another, to spur one another on and to have these close one another relationships. Paul, is the example for us of how this looks in God's church. Amen? Okay, so he took every opportunity to encourage. Secondly, he was concerned about the unity between the Jews and Jewish, sorry, the Jews and Gentile Christians. He was concerned about the unity that 
you know, the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings from the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now it was time to repay that with, with physical blessings. He was concerned about the relationship between Jew and Gentile. He wanted unity. He understood what God was doing. That God was busy gathering the nations and how important it was to have relationships, you know, loving relationships and understanding between Jew and, and Gentile. And then thirdly, he was a great planner, but he wasn't rigid. I think that's so important. Paul was a planner. I mean, there's no ways that you take on these amazing missionary journeys without planning ahead. He planned who would be with him. He very carefully selected his traveling companions to complement him. He always put in there someone he would be mentoring and coaching and raising up as well. Now, he was a planner, but he allowed himself to be, he allowed his plans to be changed by the Holy Spirit. And I know there are different ways to classify people, but on this planning spectrum, I've, I've found in business and also even in the church that there are two types of people, two extreme types of people. The first type of person doesn't plan at all. Like, oh, I'll just be led by the Spirit. of, you know, I'll just go with the flow. I'll wing it as I go along. Any of you relate to that? You don't have to put your hands up here. And I find that this often reflects maybe some confused thinking. Uh, it can also reflect, I think, laziness. Just not using our God-given ability to think and to plan. That's an extreme. The other extreme is that people who over-plan. Over-planners, I think, uh, planning everything to the minutest detail provides some security in their world. It kind of provides some order and security. And I think there are, there are errors in both. We can't live Christianity without planning at all and whoopee, you know, the spirit will decide what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. And also we can't over plan what we do as Christians. Having the mind of Christ involves planning, but being very open to the Holy Spirit changing our plans. Because situations change. They change all the time. And not to stick to our plans very, very rigidly. Um, so we see this with Paul. You know, he didn't insist on hopping on the ship because that's what he had to do to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. He changed his plan and he made sure that, you know, he still had Passover, but he had it in Philippi. And the Spirit, I'm sure, was involved and he was involved in prayer in, in, in making that happen. You know, Jesus planned as well. Jesus very specifically chose the 12 that he chose. He was very specific in choosing 12 very ordinary guys, uneducated. Uh, quite honestly, in many ways, they were just bumbling idiots before they received the Spirit and before they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And I say that too often, don't I, Sibu? But it's true. I mean, But that gives us hope, doesn't it? Because we're also bumbling idiots, let's face it. We don't know what to do. We make wrong decisions. We mess up. So Jesus chose these people very deliberately. Now that's planning. That came out of prayer. His ministry was very deliberate. He started in Galilee where these guys came from. And it's difficult to plot exactly where he, he walked after that, depending on the gospel you reach. But he very deliberately approached Jerusalem, visited certain villages, and he very deliberately exposed more about who he was as he approached Jerusalem. Remember, it's a couple of times he said, it's too soon, it's too early. It's too soon. I can't claim to be the son of God just yet, because he knew what would happen. He planned to arrive in Jerusalem just in time for the Passover. Jesus was a planner. But he spent time with God. Every day he was in prayer with God. And I believe he was praying with God just, just for uh, confirmation or, you know, he certainly prayed, I think, what, how he told his disciples to pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, God. 
And I think on a daily basis, he just checked with God what, what, you know, what that looked like. Are we still on track with this plan, God? Do we need to change anything? Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I speak to? He had a plan, but through prayer, he was continually willing to adjust and adapt the plan. Paul had that mind, mind of Christ, when it came to planning. And then the, the last point I just want to draw out of this passage of Scripture, how we see the, the mind of Christ in, in what Paul uh, gets up to here. Paul was a team player. He did mission together. One of the big themes in Acts and in the early church is that they were together. Now, this wasn't lone-range Christianity. There weren't any sort of personalities. Certainly, Paul didn't want worship of personalities. There weren't these amazing out-there leaders proclaiming the gospel all on their own. Paul probably could have done that, but he did it as a team, and he carefully selected the people around him. Paul was a team player. Jesus was the same in in selecting the 12 men that I refer to, the disciples. Jesus was a team player. Jesus certainly didn't need people, did he? God doesn't need anything. But Jesus chose. God's plan has always been to put right the things that are wrong in the world. God's plan has always been to, to restore mankind in his image using us, working with his people. God gives us purpose. God gives us meaning. God gives us identity. God gives us belonging in his family. God is a communal God. God is a relational God. God is a team player. Right? And he invites us to be on his team, to be part of his story, you know, to make things right. Jesus was the same. Paul was a team player as well. Let's read on. I'm going to go through the second section uh, much quicker. Uh, Acts 20 from verse 7. Okay, now this is a really one of the, the weirdest, funniest, in a sense, stories in the Bible for me, certainly in the book of Acts. So they arrive at Troas, and let's see what happens. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone, gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and they were a little, they were not a little comforted. In other words, they were much comforted. So Paul is with his disciples in Troas, they have a meal together, probably was taking communion, and he starts talking with them. Now this word, interestingly, he talked with them, it actually means uh, not preaching, he had discussion with them. So this was like one of our Bible talks, or our small group meetings more than what I'm doing now. So he engaged with them. He threw out questions. They asked him questions. It was probably a small group of disciples. And But think about it. Paul is hopping on a ship the next day. There's a boat waiting for him the next day, probably early in the morning. Paul was expecting maybe to spend an evening with them, a couple of hours, let's have a meal together, take communion, and we'll have a discussion. It was extended till midnight. And then it was extended again. It went right through the night. 
Paul was just available throughout the night, you know, teaching and encouraging and having discussion with the Christians there. Now, what is the lesson in the story? Paul is preaching and teaching, and this young guy falls down from the third floor and lands on the floor dead with a loud thud. So what's the lesson for us? It's not that we shouldn't preach long sermons, eh? The lesson is you shouldn't fall asleep during sermons. Now, Paul could raise you from the dead or resurrect you. No one in this church can do it. Okay, so, right, we teach the Bible properly, okay? It's got nothing to do with not teaching long sermons. Don't fall asleep. But there is actually humor in the story. Listen to this, because this guy, Eutychus, it's a nickname for Lucky. You know any guys who called Lucky or nickname? This guy was really lucky, wasn't he? Now, he was lucky that Paul was there. And also... Um, you know, the statement that Paul says that he still spoke longer. Now, so Luke does have a bit of a sense of humor. But why did he fall off, fall off you know, the windowsill? Uh, Luke also makes the point that there were many oil lamps. So I think he's giving him, showing him a bit of grace. Because if you're in an enclosed area with lots of people and lots of oil lamps, what happens? Carbon dioxide builds up, doesn't it? You know, the smell of the burning oil. So we'll give this guy, we'll show the guy grace. He didn't fall asleep, he just was overcome by the fumes, but whatever. So Paul, Paul jumps, you know, lies on him in the tradition of Elijah and Elisha. They also, we mustn't call it resurrection, but it's resuscitation, because obviously these guys died again. Okay, but in the same way that Elisha and Elijah threw themselves on, they were also young men and resuscitated them, Paul does the same thing. What the significance is in that, I don't know. But it's just interesting that the echoes of what you know the old Old Testament prophets did. So what do we learn about the mind of Christ in Paul during this time in Troas? I really pull it together in one lesson that's so critically important. Paul was available. He had the mind of Christ. Jesus was available, wasn't he? Now Jesus never had this attitude, oh, you know, I need some more me time. His me time was more prayer time with God. And absolutely, Jesus had lots of fun with these guys. I can imagine the amazing things they, they got up to. But Jesus was always available. He was available for his disciples. He was available for sick people. He was available when, when women touched you know, the edge of his cloak. He was available when children came up to him. When his disciples wanted to say, can we get rid of the children? Jesus was available. He had so many evenings around the table, taking meals with people, reaching out to people. He also had long nights of discussion. He was available. And Paul, we see, had that mind of Christ. And that's a, just a decision, isn't it? I mean, I sometimes have been at extended sort of meetings or events, and I think, oh, my goodness, I really don't want to be here. It's like I've got other things to do. You know what? But then it's a decision to say, you know what? It's not about me. It's about encouraging the people, yeah? And it's about setting a, a, an example and giving as tired as I feel, I choose to just give. Not easy to do, but that's having the mind of Christ. We're available and we give. Now, so the, the mind of Christ leads us to be available to fellowship and to speak about Jesus. Uh, and with that mind, we prioritize meetings of the body. We, we don't get into the habit of not meeting together, as the writer to Hebrews would warn the church. They had got into a habit of not beating together. They weren't available. That's not, that's not having the mind of Christ. So let me 
finish here. I've, I've made five points. I just want to summarize on a, on a slide. In this little story, stories of, of Paul and his travels from, from Ephesus to Corinth and then back to Troas, um, we see five evidences of having the mind of Christ. And these are, these are real tangible things. Firstly, people with the mind of Christ encourage and connect with disciples at every opportunity. And I'd add to that, we have heart-rendering farewells, such is the depth of the relationship. We connect with one another at, at a deep level at every opportunity. People with the mind of Christ build unity in God's family of all nations. We will put God's universal family, his family of churches, ahead of our own needs in this body even. And I'm so grateful for the connections between our church and other churches, aren't you? There's something special. I know there are a few people here today from other churches. Amen. East London, Cape Town, might be missing some. That's awesome. When, when we are together, when, with disciples from other churches, when we live out this family of all nations that goes way beyond Port Elizabeth, it is, it is so special. That's, that's the mind of Christ. People with the mind of, mind of Christ do sound planning, but we allow the Spirit to have the final say. People with the mind of Christ are team players. You know, we do mission together. And people with the mind of Christ are available. We make ourselves available to God's people. We make ourselves available to people who don't know Jesus yet. We don't watch our clocks. We're flexible. We're willing to reprioritize if being with this group of people is, is the priority at the time. You know, so my challenge to all of us here is to imitate the mind of Paul to imitate his worldview as he imitated the mind and the worldview of Jesus. Let's help one another develop these attitudes of Paul. You know, his way of thinking, his way of making decisions, his way of prioritizing. Um, let's imitate Paul in how his transformation was, re- was led by rewiring of his mind. Amen. Thank you, church.